We all have our favorite Christmas songs. We could all go around and name the one that stands out the most to us, but the, the most published Christmas hymn is actually a song that is not written for Christmas. It has no nativity, no shepherds, no virgin birth. That's because Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World about the second coming of Jesus Christ. If you know the story, Watts about 300 years ago wrote a book that had its share of critics at the time, but was wildly popular. It was called The Psalms of David Imitated in the Language of the New Testament. And what Watts did is he took many of the Psalms and he paraphrased them, both because he thought he could make them a little bit more singable, his opinion, and, and not everybody embraced that idea. But again, it was enormously sung, but to make it more singable and to have them reflect our knowledge from the New Testament of Christ, to sort of update the Psalms, if you will, just a little bit. And so one of the songs that Isaac, uh, one of the songs that uh, we sing is a paraphrase of parts of Psalm 98. And so joy to the world. I'm going to read a few verses and you can see them on the screen from Psalm 98. And you'll see echoes of joy to the world in Psalm 98. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. When Jesus returns, the whole earth will see the king who rules the world, the creator of all, the one who is Lord of all. And they will see the one who rules with truth and grace, the one who will judge the nations by the measure of his righteousness. And so today, as we joyfully celebrate the miraculous birth of Jesus, coming to save his people, to provide redemption for you and I, we also rejoice because Jesus Christ is coming again. Amen. In just a few minutes, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper, and it will be both a remembrance of Christ's first coming, his suffering, his giving his body to the cross and his body and his blood, but in doing so, as we take the bread and drink the cup, we what? Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we are not only looking back, but we are looking toward the return of Jesus Christ. And so our joy for his first coming is, is really a foretaste of what we will do in our rejoicing when Jesus Christ comes again, when, when the Lord of heaven and earth comes and the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing together and we see our King. If you would turn or scroll to Matthew 11, I'm going to hit a number of different passages this morning. I will tell those of you who do have little ones, this won't be as long as a typical Sunday morning, um, but, but we will go through a number of passages in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 11, we've read in previous weeks about John the Baptist. We've been seeing the incarnation of Jesus Christ in part through the eyes of John the Baptist as he sees Jesus approaching and his baptism of Jesus. Sometime after John baptized Jesus, Jesus enters into his public ministry. He's preaching. He is carrying out miraculous signs. John goes on in ministry, and John is eventually arrested for preaching against Herod Antipas and, and the sexual sin that the ruler of the region was carrying on in. So John is put into jail, and so in Matthew 11, verse 2, says this, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, to, to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John the Baptist was confused. Through prophets, 
like Isaiah, God had promised a king who would reign in righteousness, a king who would be mighty, who would bring justice to the world, who would cause his people to live at peace. Nations would come to the throne of this king. We've read most of this in Isaiah as they they would stream to the holy city and come before the king and worship him. He would defeat his enemies and all who persecuted his people and all of the, the suffering brought about by the curse of man's sin would be reversed at the reign of this king. John the Baptist knew that, that prophecy and he also knew that Jesus was preaching with great power and that he was performing miraculous deeds, but he could also look around and see Rome still ruled with an iron rod. There was still disease that ravaged lives. Hatred was alive and well. Evil and injustice still prevailed throughout the world. And so John the Baptist was looking at what he knew, looking at what was happening, and not seeing everything happening that he had anticipated with the coming of the Messiah, and so he is confused. John, we know, was executed before Jesus began to preach as he did in John chapter 14, when Jesus began to speak of his second coming. In John 14, 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. John had died before Jesus began to say, there's there's more to this. There's not only this appearance, but I will be coming again. In Matthew 24, he spells it out. Verse 30, Jesus said, All the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then a few verses later, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 44, and we'll come back to this verse. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Even after Jesus died and then rose from the dead, he ascends into heaven, and as he does and his disciples are standing there looking into the sky and, and watching that their Savior has departed, we see two men with white robes in Acts 1.11 who say this, Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so repeatedly, this message of Jesus is coming again is preached not only by Jesus, but it is witnessed now by these messengers And then reiterated again by Jesus at the very end of the New Testament in Revelation 22. Three different times in Revelation 22, he says, I am coming soon. Surely I am coming. Jesus is abundantly clear in his revelation to John that he is returning. He promised to return for his bride, the church. And the truth is then that 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 return of Jesus becomes a major theme throughout the New Testament. And we, we see it from the writers of the New Testament, proclaiming to us the return of Christ. And so on this Christmas morning, I just want to take a few minutes for us to just together meditate on on the return of our Savior, to think about that. We, We put much energy and devotion and passion into our celebration of his incarnation. We've all vested a lot over the course of the previous weeks into last night and today. I want to challenge you this morning to to be as similarly and regularly energized and passionate about the return of your Savior, Jesus Christ. How is your life shaped, affected by the truth that Jesus is coming back? Because the New Testament has so much to say about it. And typically, whenever the New Testament talks about the return of Christ, the apostles are also writing that this has something to do with your living now. 
that it's not just the truth that he's coming back, but it's the effect that that truth should have on us today. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, because Jesus is coming back. We are to be expectant, eager, and encouraged. Let me start with expectant. This is the sense of, of certainty. And we get this several passages I already mentioned, and I'll say it again, Matthew 24, 44. Jesus, therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Jesus had, just prior to the statement, had used the illustration of a homeowner who is facing a thief. A thief is going to break into his home and steal. And, and what Jesus says in this illustration is if the homeowner knew that the thief was coming, he would be prepared. He, he would be ready. He would be awake and he would do everything he could to keep that thief out. And then Jesus says, therefore, you also must be ready. In Jesus' story, the coming of that thief is certain. He will come. It's not, it's not a question of if, but when. And the, the issue is, will the homeowner be prepared? For when he comes, will he be expecting this to happen as has been promised? And in the same way, we are called to be certain, to be expecting Jesus Christ to return. He says, therefore, be ready for his return. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Jesus will descend from heaven in a way that is personal, visible, that is clear. He will, he will be seen. Eyes will see his return. This will not be some secret spiritual event. When Jesus returns, it will be loud and real and evident to all. He promised it, and the New Testament teaches it again and again, and we should be expecting it and living as people who are expecting our Savior to come back for us. That's why he says, therefore, you must be ready. Therefore, you must be like vigilant homeowners who understand that there are all sorts of threats, and so you prepare for them. In the same way, know that I am coming, and so prepare for my coming. Live as one who is expecting my return. Have you ever had... This isn't really have you ever. This is how many times have you had a foolish argument with a spouse, a sibling, or a friend. One of those where you raised your voice, you said some things you wish you probably hadn't said, and then later on you both could barely remember what actually triggered the argument in the first place. You, you, you know it got intense, but trying to remember how it started is another thing, right? All seems kind of foolish when we come to that point of going, why were we arguing in the first place? When Jesus Christ returns, so much that in the moment seems so very important to us will suddenly seem insignificant at best, if not even foolish. Some of the, the things that we are preoccupied with, that we are anxious about, when the skies split open and we see our king, Will we have been expecting him? Will we be in a mode of, of trusting that he is returning and all of this is in his hands and his timing? If you wonder what expecting looks like, Bob read the passage earlier. We're going to read it one more time. Titus 2, 11 and 13, because this, as he said earlier, does a wonderful job of saying, Jesus comes to save us from sin by his grace. 
And he continues to bestow grace on us because he's coming again and he wants us to live as people prepared for that. And so it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, purifying a people who are zealous for good works and who are waiting, expecting the return of Christ and living in light of that expectation then means we need God's grace to renounce ungodliness, and to pursue that which is pleasing to him, the holiness that is pleasing to him, to live as a purified people who are waiting for the groom to come. We should be expectant. Second, we should be eager. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, I'm going to read verses 20 and 21. And this is another one of those where the context helps us to see a contrast, but Philippians 3.20 begins, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There's that but at the beginning of verse 20. Paul had just written about those who are enemies of the cross who seek their own gain. They are, as he even describes it in the prior verses, they are consumed with the here and now. The, the, the driving passion is what can I get for myself with earthly things, and they are striving to accumulate earthly treasure. He says, but we who are saved by the grace of God, we who are saved by Jesus Christ, even in our lowly body, as he describes it, even in our humble frame as we are, we already have citizenship where Jesus now is in heaven. We belong to him and we are citizens of his kingdom. And so we wait. In fact, we eagerly await. CSB adds eagerly in that. And, 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 and eagerly is a good addition at that point because the word Paul uses, on the one hand, it, the, the, the main part of the word is the typical word for wait. It's the same thing that when we get to communion and we read from 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul instructs the believers who are being selfish about their pursuit of, of the meal together and says you need to wait for one another. We understand that basic meaning of wait, but in the Greek you, when you add a preposition, it's a way of strengthening a word. That's what's done here. It's to intensify the word. It's, it's like we would underline it or put an exclamation point. By adding this preposition, it says we eagerly await. We are longing for. This is a, an, an eagerness to our desire to see Jesus. I'll illustrate it this way. We all expect spring to come. We're certain of that, but right now we are eager for warmer weather. And yet, the reality is that that eagerness wanes with the truth that spring is still several months away. We just started winter. And so as much as we're complaining and hoping that this will all change, we know the calendar says, don't be too eager. You're not like a watchman standing on the tower waiting for warm weather to come because, well, we're still in the middle of winter. Well, you may be the same way about the return of Jesus Christ. I know he's coming. I know the Bible says it. I know that Jesus promised it and the apostles repeat it again and again. 
And yet, it's so possible for our eagerness to wane. Because we think, well, it's been 2,000 years since that promise of soon coming was made. It's been a long time. And some of us even sort of let our minds wander into the thought that there's, there's still things I want to do here on earth. There's still things that I want to accomplish here. And, and maybe I'm, I'm not eagerly anticipating Christ's return. And that may be where you are this morning. And Philippians 3 would challenge you and say, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you already belong to a heavenly kingdom and, and you are drawing nearer and nearer every moment to the return of your king who will draw you into the full experience of that kingdom. We are so often tempted to be earthbound in our goals and desires and to push the return of Christ sort of to the back page. And scripture challenges us to be eagerly waiting for our savior to appear and to transform these bodies to be fit for the glories of heaven. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's another one of those statements, like we saw in Titus, where it's this tie together of the first coming and the second coming. He takes the implications of the first coming, that he died to save you from sin, with the importance of the second coming. He says, Jesus came as a servant who died once for all. His sacrifice was perfect. There was no need to repeat it in any way because he gave the sufficient sacrifice that pleased the Father to rescue us from divine judgment. Everyone will stand before the holy God of the universe. He makes it clear in verse 27 to, to die and then to stand before the judgment of God. And the only way you can be saved from the wrath of God is through trusting in Jesus Christ. It is believing that Jesus Christ died for your sin, that he died in your place, and that he is the perfect sacrifice for your sin. And if that's where you're at this morning and you're considering Jesus Christ, then may I, I plead with you that before you even think about the second coming of Christ, you think on this truth, that you need Jesus as Savior. And, and you need to trust in him and believe that he died in your place for your sin and rose again to give you life. That salvation is accomplished in his atoning death. And that picture in Hebrews 9 of this eager waiting for the return, for the writer of Hebrews, who's writing to a largely Jewish audience in, in the first century, it, it, it's a picture to them of the Jewish people as they've gathered outside the, the temple in Jerusalem. And the high priest has gone into the most holy place on the day of atonement to make atonement. And they are, they are waiting for him to come out to see that he successfully makes his way out of the most holy place and out of the temple to show that the sacrifice was accomplished. And, and he's taking that picture and saying, now, here we are, God's people, eagerly awaiting the great high priest who has offered the perfect sacrifice, and he's now coming to bring to us the fullness of our salvation. All that comes because of his sacrifice, when he returns, he will gather us to him for eternity. And that should give us eagerness. That should fill us with a persistent hope and anticipation that we will know the full glory of what it means to be saved when Jesus returns. We, we already know some of that, but there is so much more to come when Jesus returns. The champion who defeated sin and death will come and take his people and share in his victory spoils 
with you and I when he returns. For now we live in bodies of flesh. We serve in these bodies of flesh. We have family and friends to love and serve, jobs to tend to, ministries to undertake. But what the New Testament is is trying to do is urge us to do all of that living and serving and loving against the backdrop of Christ's return, knowing that all that we do now is anticipation of his return, of being in his presence. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you want to scroll there, and this will be our last point, expectant, eager, and finally encouraged. The promise of Christ's return should encourage us in many ways. I'm I'm going to point out just two this morning in terms of encouragement. Paul writes this letter to Christians who thought that Jesus should have returned by the time that he wrote this. Jesus had died. He had risen. He had promised his soon return. He had ascended into heaven, and they were eagerly anticipating it. The problem is years now had passed And fellow believers had already died while they were waiting, and the Thessalonian Christians were anxious, and they were upset. What about our brothers and sisters who've gone before? We're we're still waiting. Christ hasn't returned. And so in writing to calm their fears, Paul speaks of those who have died in faith in Christ as being asleep, but also as already being with Jesus, and like us, waiting for his return. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Don't you love Paul's We who are alive, this this expectation of Christ's return was so real, the promise of Jesus's visible return. And with his return comes the most amazing reunion you and I have ever experienced. Not only will we see Jesus, but we will be joined with brothers and sisters who died with faith in Christ, believing in him. And we will be brought together. And Paul said, encourage one another. With these words. When when Jesus Christ returns, the enemy of death will be vanquished for his people. And as his saints, we will never again experience that. And, And we will experience the reunion of the saints of every era gathering together. If someone you know and love was trusting in Jesus Christ when they passed from this earth, God's word says, Be encouraged. They are with Jesus. And we will be joined together with them and we will enjoy eternal life with them. And that's why verse 18 says, speak these words of hope to one another. We need to encourage one another in this way. At this time of year, especially when when hearts ache with memories of loved ones who have gone on before, God says those who died in Christ are already in his presence. And when Jesus returns, we will be joined together with them. There's one other point of encouragement in terms of the promise of Christ's return. And this one's from Revelation 21. For as wonderful and joyous as this Christmas is, you kids are saying, it's a really happy day, especially when this guy finishes talking. It'll probably be even happier. (laughs) We know how happy and joyous this day is. There's still sickness. There's still sadness. There's still suffering. We'll still see in the headlines that some tragedy happens somewhere. Lots of places, there will be people suffering today. There's still pain and loss. If you didn't have a reason to, 
to cry deeply in 2022, you will probably have a reason in 2023 because that's the reality of life in a broken world. But when the king returns, here is the truth. Revelation 21, four through six. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. We celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ because it is the very cause of our redemption. Our joy today is not simply because a baby was born in Bethlehem, but because that baby was God incarnate and he became a man who lived a sinless life and who gave himself in our place that we might have life and forgiveness. But we are also encouraged today by the promise of his second coming. When we see our king, it will mean the fullness of salvation and the end of suffering for his people. We will be delivered from these bodies of flesh that not only wear out, but that are tempted by sin and drawn into the foolish things that we do. We will be made new. The Alpha and the Omega promises. There will be no more crying. We will be with our Lord forever, and all that is wrong in this world will pass away and be made new. That's the encouragement we hold to this morning. Not just that he came, but that he is returning, and that he is returning for us. And when he does, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, the final enemy, which is death, will be swallowed up in victory. And that day, Jesus leads us into the Sabbath rest that Hebrews promises. Are you expecting that day? Are you living in expectation of that day? Are you eager for that day? Are you encouraged by that day? Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Say it with me. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray. Amen. Father, we come before you as a thankful, grateful people. We are thankful that your plan from eternity past was to rescue a people for your own and then to bring them into your presence, to Enable them to experience your glory, to worship you as those who have been redeemed. Lord, help us to, even as we set from here into the busy schedule that lies ahead of us this day and this week and all that's ahead of us, help us to not lose sight of the fact that one of these days our king will split open the skies and the rivers will clap. And Lord, the glorious son of God will appear to all and will return for his people. Lord, give us the encouragement and the hope that comes with that. Thank you for your truth that promises it. Help us to be bearers of that truth as we go from here with the joy of Christ. Might we share with others the truth of our soon coming King. It's in his name we pray. Amen.